everybody to chapter four and five today of ingo swan's secrets of power volume one let's get into it Yaw! chapter four our human power species at first take any effort to establish a functional link between power and our human species might seem uninteresting. If one's thinking only in terms of power, it's probably not necessary to make that link, but if one is thinking in terms of empowerment, then it is clear that empowerment involves a change of state from some kind of powerlessness into a state characterized by manifestations of more power. The Distinctions Between Sources and Manifestations of Power One of the ultimate issues regarding empowerment has to do with where power comes from in the first place. It's important to point out that there are meaningful distinctions between 1. Where power comes from and 2. What power is. The foregoing also distinguishes between 1. Sources of power and 2. Manifestations of power. But the term manifest refers to whatever is readily perceived by the senses, especially by sight, or to uh, whatever is easily understood or recognized by the mind. Manifestation refers to something made evident, obvious, or certain by appearing, showing, or displaying. Source, however, go back to the source, Neo, refers to the point of origin, a generative force, a cause, to rise up or spring forth. Thus, if there is no point of origin for something, then there will be no manifestations of it. So if there are no sources of power, then there won't be any manifestations of it. We've got to find the source. As will become very clear, the foregoing discussion regarding sources and manifestations of power is absolutely superloaded with implications having to do with grokking not only the phenomena of empowerment, but the phenomena of depowerment as well. Our species erects power structures. It's quite clear that people can gain access to positions of power within given power structures. Thus, it's usual for individuals to think and talk about power within the context of their own local environments, where elements of the power structures impinge on them and condition their reality packages. The general result of this is that those who want to climb societal or organizational power ladders within the power structures most likely see those structures as sources of power regarding manifestations of control, authority, and influence over others. And so it is possible to think that this upward power mobility as accessing into the playing power games which already established power structures. So it's reasonable to wonder from where and why power structures come into existence. Well, scientists and philosophers accept the idea that our species is a social one, which erects structured societies. Society is defined as an enduring and cooperating social group whose members have developed organized patterns of relationships through interaction with one another. Developed organized patterns, quote-unquote. 
refers not only to local or smaller social scenarios, but also to the larger contexts of social structuring. Don't look now, it's not working so well in some of these big cities here in the U.S. There is no disagreement. Wherever people congregate for any length of time, they set about erecting or formatting social structures. Hey, I remember the playground, okay? Who gets chosen first, in the middle, or last for soccer? Who is invited or not invited to parties? Yeah, I remember. <laughs> However, what is not usually discussed, at least not in any clear-cut way, is that all societies erect power structures within their developed, organized patterns. And these power structures assume central control of whatever else the social structure consists of. It's really quite fair to consider that if developing the elements of structured socialization is actually a species thing, then the developing of power structures is also a species thing. Indeed, where a social structure comes into existence, a power structure becomes formatted within it. The cool kids, the okay kids, the nerds, who, you know, sometimes could traverse back and forth, the rebels, and then the wannabes. I'm pretty sure I've been all of them at one point or another. Thus, if it is possible to consider where power basically comes from, one will eventually have to conclude that it consists of important and strong elements within the human species as a whole. Those important and strong elements download into each individual of the species, after which, one, the individuals express themselves if they can, and two, also collectively design and set up power structures that can come to house large societies and even vast civilizations. Giving Identity to our species. The scientific classification of life forms did not begin until the mid 1600s. A species became identified by life forms that had common characteristics and whose male and female specimens could mate and produce progeny. In zoology and botany, the definition of species was established as a group or class of animals or plants, usually constituting a subdivision of a genus having certain common and permanent characteristics which clearly distinguish it from other groups. Our species was given the Latin names of Homo sapiens sapiens. This name can be translated into a number of ways. Some options are man, male and female, who thinks and knows that they do. Man who knows and knows that they know. Man who has memory intelligence and knows that they have memory intelligence. In other words, intelligence not power, was somehow considered as our species' most distinguishing attribute. Hmm. But there is a rather enormous glitch in what we just mentioned. It's certainly true that intelligence and power have some relationship. It's also true that power can design ways and means to modulate and also suppress intelligence on behalf of this or that societal power structure. Conditioned power refers to the educational persuasion of what the individual in the social context has been brought to believe is inherently correct. Something something like the global financial system is sound and intact and we should all participate and enjoy that. Right, okay. Sure, school. Sure. Once this is achieved in the societal context, submission to the authority of others reflects the accepted view of what the individual should believe, think, and do regardless of any intelligence that might be housed in the individual. Uh-huh. Quiet, citizen. Do as we say. Follow the law. Follow our rules. Don't pay attention if we don't, but, you know, just do what we say. In any event, even though power and intelligence do have various kinds of relationships, they are not the same thing. 
Manifestations of power constitute a more central situation in our species than intelligence does. And again, if you look at that power structure on the playground, uh, you know, more often than not, the cool kids at the top of the pyramid were not that intelligent. Let's be honest. Power only tolerates intelligence to the degree that the latter is not troublesome to it. What'd you say about me, kid? I said you sound like you can't read. What was that? I said that you run with great speed. <laughs> we, of course, need to think of our species as having intelligence and probably having creativity, too. Yeah, but at our species level, and immediately superior, as it were, to intelligence and creativity is the consideration of man, man and woman, who has and can make power, and knows it. As it really is, then, our species literally drips with power, far more than it drips with intelligence or even creativity. Right? I mean, just look at TV these days. Not that much creativity. House of Dragons is all right. And indeed, if the definition of power is accepted as control, authority, and influence over others, then that would naturally include the same with regard to the intelligence and creativity levels of those others. Our Species Endowed with Powers In the biological and zoological sciences, a species is basically designed for basic physical survival of itself within given environments. But if this would be the case regarding the human species, we would not need the extraordinary lineup of additional endowments, powers, faculties, and abilities we are widely known to possess. I can clap with one hand. Can, I mean, what's, what purpose does that serve? It is worthwhile pointing up one such power, the power of discovering and accumulating knowledge, and then the power of access and jurisdiction over it. Our species is remarkably over-endowed with regard to mere survival, so over-endowed that there is an enormous scientific and philosophic gap between it and all other known species inhabiting this planet. For better or worse, you know, uh, I, I mean, hey, yeah, I just read an article today where they are able to make nano-diamonds out of blasting high-intensity lasers at plastic. How crazy is that? Our species is known to have powers and abilities it doesn't use, a good part of which fall into the category known as powers of mind, but which could more correctly be referred to as power of powers. It is perhaps a bit awkward to suggest that our species is a species having the power of powers. Even so, it is our species that resolutely goes about erecting power structures of all kinds and shapes, the most basic and obvious purpose of which is to have control, authority, and influence over others. In any event, a species bereft of powers and power-making probably wouldn't have an identifiable need to do any such thing. Items to be considered What powers do societal power structures work to contain, control, or suppress? Just look at uh, everybody getting angry at, uh, you know, entheogen uh, um, use. Even cannabis, the, the dragging of the feet of cannabis, and yet booze is just readily available. Math, we have a math problem. I mean, it's crazy. But the idea of suppression of independent exploration of your mind using certain substances is greatly ridiculed and tabooed against. Although, I mean, hey, we're certainly uh, uh, breaking through that at breakneck speed, for sure. A lot has changed, but that's just one of, uh, you know, you could say many examples 
A, a, a subtler one you could say is, if you're going to go to work, you got to dress a certain way. And obviously, I, I don't mean, you know, show up in your PJs, although, hey, that would be pretty cozy. And remote work, oh, there's one. The, the total pushback against the idea of remote work. If you are a remote worker, you're less effective. You're less efficient. You're a bad person if you want to remote work. My brother is coming up against this quite a bit because he's applying for uh, remote style work. And it's just amazing the reticence at which companies, well, we don't want you to remote work. How come? How come, companies? Don't you want to make more money? Don't you want to be good at what you're producing? Well, why don't you let people be the people more so that they could be at home than they would be at work, thus naturally creating an environment where they would be able to be more themselves, which is why you hired them, because they're good at what they do. If they're more themselves, then they're going to have more of an opportunity to be more themselves being good at what you hired them for. You see where I'm going with this. Remote work is good. Get off our backs. Ah! <laughs> okay, short break. Chapter 5 is next. Chapter 5. The Role of Secrecy in Designing a Power Structure There are any number of ways of picturing the designs of societal power structures. It's the function of this chapter to at least cast a brief glance at some of them. Doing so will increase the dimensions of awareness among those who are interested in empowerment and also be helpful in reversing subtle depowerment realities at work in most of those structures. And that's why we're here, right? Stretch out the spectrum, grow in awareness, see the power structures for what they are, structures, artificially structured, and see how best we can operate as the best we can be, either inside or outside those power structures. You want to bring it down from the inside? You want to optimize it? Build your own? I am certainly a grand proponent of finding and following your own yellow brick road perhaps even making it every step of the way. Okay, the power pyramid design. We all know the power pyramid design, right? It's a pyramid. The elites are at the top, the powerless at the bottom, and there are these levels divided going up of decreasing numbers of people and increasing, you know, potential positions of power. Ingo says, of course, this is a neat way of picturing uh, the power structures. It's easily grokked all at once. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with this pyramidal presentation, uh, with two rather subtle exceptions. First, the powerful themselves endorse the pyramidal presentation. Interesting, it's, uh, you know, shows up everywhere. Well, this is how it is, right? So you just uh, fall in line. The pyramidal format also gives the subtle but explicit impression that access to power merely requires a vertical ascent to the top. You start here, you go up here. But it's easy, right? If you're worthy. If you're worthy, you can ascend. Second, and even more subtle, empowerment in the pyramidal format is to be understood as the vertical ascent and nothing else. In other words, that's the only way. Shut up, get your head down, and see if you can climb this pyramidal ladder of power. In other words, Ingo says, notions of empowerment and routes to it are confined within the power structure, and this makes it possible and entirely probable that the top power echelons determine who to ascend or not. 
This particular power structure design seems to present a fair and even hopeful description of power, implying as it does that those among the powerless ranks who can manage to do so can make the power ladder ascent, and possibly arrive at at least in some modicum of position of power. The pyramidal design for a power structure, even if objectionable in many respects, exerts a somewhat hypnotic allure over the masses incorporated within it. It's on the U.S. dollar bill. What is not expressly visible in the power pyramid design is the simple reality that the powerful need the presence of the powerless in order to have something to have power over. Thus, ways and means must be discovered and implemented to keep the majority of the powerless as powerless as possible. If the powerless became aware of those ways and means, then significant numbers of the powerless would object to them. Hey, how come you're doing that no, to us? We don't like you're suppressing that. my power! <laughs> All true. So those ways and means must be at least as invisibly subtle as possible, and even quite secret if necessary. Hmm. Three other helpful ways of picturing power structures. The first one, as already discussed, is a labyrinth. We all know what a labyrinth looks like. They're fun to play with. But it's good to bear in mind that a labyrinth is confusing, and that the labyrinthine nature of power can be found often inside all power pyramidal designs. Another reason of this is it has to do with the fact that power structures are rife with cleverly and deliberately engineered misinformation and disinformation activities. These activities are designed to be labyrinthine in character, so to mislead, confuse, and cause general cognitive unawareness of what is really going on. How about that Project Blue Book? Project Mockingbird? How propaganda is just pumped at us every which way all of the time. You know, that kind of stuff. Everyone more or less understands this. I, I would agree that most people understand this, and I bet everyone feels it, if not being consciously, intellectually aware of it. I bet we all feel it. But I would also bet that some either willfully ignore it or live in unawareness of the situation due to the environment in which they are in. I drive a BMW and I can pay for my gas and I've got a really nice place and, you know, who's to complain? I think everything's fine. <laughs> However, the activities within power structures that produce misinformation and disinformation are usually secretized. Another way of picturing power structures, which was fashionable in the late 19th centuries and, you know, up through the early 20th centuries, which I remember in my AP U.S. history book, which was power being represented as a giant octopus, sometimes with many more than eight arms. The oil barons were uh, depicted as uh, giant octopuses scooping up all of uh, the other industries beneath them and running them either into the ground or absorbing them as extensions of power. I remember, Mr. Guerin, I remember. In slightly different formats, this image has had a long basis in history in that power was often pictured as having a thousand faces, arms, tentacles, currents of control, manifold secrets and manipulating objectives. And, number three, the proverbial iceberg, which we talked about earlier. You know, you got a little bit on the top. Oh, no, that's all that it is. And then there's this huge hidden chunk underneath. That's what's really going on. Or what's truly running what is just barely visible at the top. The Great Antiquity of Power Machinations and Problems In its official definition, human history begins with the advent of some form of writing. And I also had to comment here, the uh, earliest customer complaint was in Sumer, 
uh, believe the city of Ur, which is in Iraq, and it was a customer complaint complaining about the condition of the copper delivered. This copper sucks. I mean, you know, I pay premium prices for premium copper. It's not premium. What's up with that? Even way back when. Anything prior to the chronological record of uh, significant past events, you know, writing, is officially listed as a prehistory or prehistorical. Writing is so closely associated with literacy, and the two are considered the same. The first literate civilization consisted of the Sumerians, which we just mentioned there in brief, starting around 3000 BC. And they came up with a form of writing, or maybe they were given a form of writing, known as cuneiform script. However, our species either emerged or appeared about 35,000 years ago, and I'm pretty sure that's being pushed back more and more as the days go by. We were around a lot longer uh, than we've been told. You want to go way off uh, uh, a little bit here. You've got the Theosophical Society with Rudolf Steiner and um, Helena Blavatsky talking about five iterations of the civilizations of man, where we've risen up, been wiped out, then risen up, then reset, then risen. I mean, it's, it's been, uh, we've been around in this form for quite some time. Anyway, officially, the appearance of modern man about 35,000 years ago is referred to as Cro-Magnon man, the name being taken from the location in France, which is evidence of Cro-Magnon settlement was first discovered, the Lascaux Caves. The so-called prehistorical period ranges from about 35,000 years ago up to the advent of writing about 3000 BC, at which time, quote-unquote, human history begins. The division is quite silly, according to Ingo Swann, because Cro-Magnon man possessed visual and three-dimensional arts. Many artifacts remaining from those arts can be carbon-dated, and they can reveal a chronology, albeit one not considered historical. But there's no writing on it. In any event, with the emergence of the great Sumerian and associated civilizations, one can find a factor which modern historians do not emphasize too much. The factor is this. With the emergence of the historical period linked to the emergence of writing, it's dramatically found that civilizations involved are already great and already have developed and perfected what can easily be recognized as enormous power structures. This can only mean that our species became preoccupied with the designing of power structures during the long prehistorical period and did so without writing and the particular kind of literacy associated with it. This somewhat means the designing, developing, implementing, and the maintenance of the human species' power structure is not completely dependent on writing and the particular kind of literacy associated with it. We grok power structures as soon as we walk into a room, whether it's a party or a meeting or a public transportation bus or train. We get it. We see it. We understand it. We sit down and read my book. I'm not going to be bothering anybody, all right? This is the same as suggesting that writing and literacy is not the key or central ingredient to formatting a power structure. Yeah. There are very few human elements that can transcend and link the very long prehistorical and rather short historical periods of our species, but certainly the factor of secrecy is one of those elements. Because secrecy can be conducted behind the scenes of writing and literacy, even in their total absence. Symbols, handshakes, wink-winks, you know how it goes. The Nature of Secrecy The nature of secrecy is, of course, to keep something hidden from others, and the modern definitions can altogether be grokked accordingly. 
something kept hidden or unexplained, something kept from the knowledge of others or shared only confidentially with a few, something constructed so as to elude observation or detected, something revealed only to the initiated, working with hidden aims or methods, remote from human frequentation or notice, something kept unexplained, something hidden but taken to be a specific or a key to a desired end, action or behavior done with stealth, artful deception, or with skillful avoidance of detection, and in violation of usage, law, authority, or established knowledge, the habit or practice of keeping secrets or maintaining privacy and concealment. The foregoing definitions are, of course, modern and consist of contemporary understanding. Now, usually it's dangerous to project contemporary understandings backward in time. This process is called anachronistic application. However, projecting the contemporary definitions of secrecy back into the past, even in the very distant past, is not too much an anachronistic application. It seems quite likely that our species, either as Homo sapiens sapiens or as Cro-Magnon man or whatever, understood elements of secrecy from the get-go. 35,000 years ago, and also grokked that secrecy was opportune for designing power structures. Empowerment items to identify. Conceptualize five general areas of societal secrecy that would be necessary to perpetuate powerlessness among the powerless. I got one that's right in front of our faces at the moment. Savings accounts! <laughs> Ah, well, hey, I love it, right? We're learning, we're growing, and we're realizing the barriers put in place are nothing more than those duckpin bowling ball blow-up tubes, and that all we have to do is examine, and very quickly are we able to at least see around that low horizon of those duckpin bowling barriers, those artificial hillocks keeping our minds in line. I'm here for it, and I'm happy you're here for it, too. Next up, chapters 6 and 7. And hey, thanks for hanging. More power to you. <laughs>